Hi, I'm Bella Sanger, enthusiastic eater, exhausted parent, founder, and CEO. In this video podcast, I really wanted to talk with a diversity of badass female entrepreneurs and thought leaders getting into what it means to belong in our professions, in our cultures, and our own bodies. As an Indian-born, Canadian-raised American woman who spent years fighting for a seat at the table, I just decided to build my own. So grab a cup of chai and join me. Welcome to Bella's Table. Welcome to Bella's Table, podcast all about imposter syndrome. Today, we have two amazing women joining us, and I couldn't be prouder that we are offering you such a rich conversation today. Today, we have Rish, Trish, sorry, Trish, Trish Milnes DeZico, social entrepreneur, educator, and thought leader. We have Angela Dunleavy, CEO, equity and justice advocate, and mother. I love seeing your posts about the boys and the puppies. Um, so today we're going to talk about imposter syndrome and it's so intersectional guys. And I, um, welcome the conversation to go wherever it needs to go. Um, this has been the topic that I've been looking forward to for our entire series that we're shooting because through COVID and particularly the last couple of years of my life, I've been on a transformational journey where I really found my own power couldn't have done that unless I was facing and looking these very things that we're going to talk about in the eye. And guess what? They're still hard. So um, I'm excited to get this conversation rolling. Um, I'm just going to launch with a question here. Uh, Is it fair to start with the assumption that we all, even as powerful, successful women, have felt insecure and unqualified at some point in our careers? Can either of you speak to one of those moments where you questioned your own authority, belongingness in a professional space? And at the time, how did you overcome that? Angela, you want to take this one? Sure. Um, Well, let me just say thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here today. I'm really excited for this conversation. And I mean, I think I don't think that there's a a person out there, um, man, woman, you know, non-binary who doesn't experience imposter syndrome at some point. Uh, And I certainly have um, experienced it many, many times. And I think being a mom, you also experience it on a personal level. Um, And so that at the very basis, you know, when you're a working mother, you feel like you're never quite doing a great job at work and you're never quite doing a great job at home um, because there is that tension. But I think at work, you know, I've I've thought about this question a, a little bit because there are so many times when it shows up. Um, I think, you know, I may, I've made some career transitions in my life. And every time I do that, I, I have some imposter syndrome. But I think from the perspective um, of what's really central in my life right now, um, as you mentioned, social justice and, and race equity and anti-racism is incredibly important to me. And as a, a white woman, um, that privilege also, of, of privilege that also comes with um, a responsibility, I think, um, to really acknowledge how my um, imposter syndrome sometimes shows up um, and impacts um, people of color. And the the example that I would give you is as as we're doing this um, anti racism work at Fair Start, and really, you know, it's such a long journey, and we've been doing it now for about three and a half years. But it's such a long journey that we are, you know, there are sort of points along the journey that feel like you're really at a precipice of what's next and you're taking that next leap. And um, just two months ago, um, I had, I was just deep in my own journey. 
I, you know, felt like I wasn't showing up for our um, black um, and brown staff in the way that I really needed to as an ally. And, you know, I got some pretty um, hard critical feedback from one of our frontline staff members um, uh, who, as his experience as a black man and something that I had said really landed on him in a way that just was felt harmful. And I had this moment where I was like, what am I doing as a CEO of this organization who is committed to anti-racism? Um, and I can't even do this right. Like I'm hot. Like I just, I just hurt this person. What am I even like, sh- am I the right person even for this role? And you know how I balanced that was <laughs> getting an email from a donor uh, later that day um, who said, I don't appreciate the, um, the distraction from your mission that you're taking by going on this anti-racism, race equity journey. And I was like, okay, I just had this moment where I just pissed two people off in one day. I maybe am doing like, okay, right now. And then I just had to give myself the grace to, you know, have the next day be a start again day to spend some time being really mindful and really like go internal about where I am in my own journey in that. But it questions, I think, everything that I do in my leadership style. Um, So that's one example that I would give of recently, but I could probably fill this entire hour with examples of times that I had imposter syndrome. Yeah. 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 I agree with you, Angela, that um, we all feel it at some point. I would say that um, people of color and white women um, voice it more because of how we're situated in in a variety of industries that weren't made for us, right? So we're already, we don't see ourselves in the industry. We get there. There are so few of us. It feels like we don't belong. But I, I think um, also that age is a good um, remedy. For that. As I've gotten older, I give fewer mm, about what people think about me. I know I am where I belong. Um, and But that first time, like that first time in the tech industry, you know, I'm surrounded by white men mostly. Um, my first moment where I felt like I didn't uh, really belong was when I gave a, uh, a talk at a SQL Server conference and I was in the one of the opening sessions. So I'm sitting, I'm on the stage. I know my stuff, but I'm on the stage and the the whole audience is, I don't know, two, 300 people out there. And they're mostly men. And they are looking to me for solutions to some of their challenges, right? Or some opportunities that they're trying to capitalize on. And I got up there and I just, I didn't feel like I belonged. And I ended up like all the things I knew, I kind of forgot. And so from that point on, one of the things um, that I made sure of is that I know every single thing about everything I'm working on. And I practice over and over and I'm not going to let any people, anybody get in my way in terms of um, making me feel like I don't belong. So it's that... um, there's a way around this, but it can eat at you. You know, the other thing I realize is that, you know, the people sitting next to you and around you are just regular people like we are. You know, they have fears, they have issues, and they're if they're white guys, they're showing up and they're they're groomed to show up like they know it all. 
even though, you know, the fake it till you make it kind of thing. But I actually think they think they know it. <laughs> they're not necessarily faking it. Right. So um, but they're regular people. And once you realize that um, they make mistakes, too, it just seems a lot easier to be in whatever environment that you're in. Um, and then the only other time I really uh, like felt it very heavy was when I went from um, the tech industry to nonprofit because I really was a fish out of water then. And it was mostly people pounding on us because they didn't want somebody from corporate coming into the nonprofit arena, you know, bringing all those business skills because we don't need those business skills. And I'm like, I'm not trying to change you. I'm trying to set up an organization for black and brown kids. So don't worry, you know, I'm not coming after you. But um, yeah, it's just uh, it's something that we have to find a way to get around um, as individuals and everybody's situation is different. Yeah, yeah. So feeling like you knew your stuff almost to the point of overpreparedness, right? Uh, do you feel like that helped you find the confidence that you needed or was it that in a combination of experience and time and getting to a point while acknowledging and looking around in the room? Well, everybody's just a persona. They're, they're a shit show behind the scenes just in the same way I am. Mm -hmm. And we're all, we're all doing our best. All of those things, right? The difference is that the people who whatever industry we're in was made for, they have it a lot easier right? Because they can just walk into an environment that's built for them, where we're walking into an environment that we have to navigate and we were never groomed to understand all the rules. And I think that's part of it too. It's like, if you don't understand the rules of the work, you know, Angela's embarking on something that a lot of white people are just starting to embark on. There are no rules right now for that. There are no rules for being an ally. And every situation is different. And that I would encourage you to sort of break that cycle of feeling like everything has a setup and everything has a set of rules. Because when we're talking about racism, there there are no real rules. Right. And every situation is so different, um, you know, kind of breaking some of those uh, dominant culture um, characteristics of their rules and everything is written and there, you know, there's a certain way that you navigate things. Racism doesn't have any of those. It's just, it is what it is and it shows up differently for everybody and how you show up as an ally, um, should match whatever, whoever you're working with. Yeah. Can I, can I jump in there really quickly though? Because Trish, one thing you said really, resonates with me. And I think that it's this fake it till you make it moment. Like white women actually can do that. Like that is a thing that we are taught as white women. Like we are taught to do that. Like just fake it until you make it because we're more accepted in those rooms than if, you know, as than walking in as a black or brown woman. Right. And so like, that's what we have to undo. And I think the really interesting thing in like my aha moment that I just had with this is when you're an when you want to be an ally and you want to be um, a white person on that anti-racist journey, you can't actually fake that until you make that. Like that's not possible. What does what does living and breathing it look like for you now that you've been digesting this for a short amount of time? What what did you learn about that? I think that it's really understanding that like the it's, it's really being okay, being extremely uncomfortable, um, and questioning yourself 
and giving yourself sort of the grace to, to move through it and, and feel the feelings and, um, and just double down and recommit to the work and, and try to identify what your blind spots are. Um, but I think it's honestly, I think it's really like the ability to lean into to vulnerability. And I think that it like that helps in leadership in so many different ways. But that's really how I experience it now is just being open to being vulnerable, being wrong, and having to say, like, I don't know the answer to that, or I'm sorry, or I didn't get that right. Yeah, I think that's the common denominator here. Like we have an Indian woman, we have an African-American woman, we have a Caucasian woman. I think the common denominator, and Trish, I hear that you're past this now, but it's finding common ground and being willing to be uncomfortable about it and and name the things and say them out loud and and at for the purpose of nothing else but to move the thing along, right? But we're also uh, trigger shy. We're also scared because Trish, you're right. Not only are there no rules for it, there's no language for it. And language are the tools that we need in order to communicate with each other. And it feels like soft footing everywhere. Hence, you know, my opening comments about even as a Indian American woman, this is very difficult for me to talk to, even though I see and I feel the pain of it firsthand for myself, then for my children, then for my community, and even in the work that I do professionally with my own company. And so, Trish, can you help me understand a little bit more about what you've learned and Angela also what you've learned about what are some of the tools and the skills as women, uh, as advocates, as a community that we can bring forward uh, for incremental progress? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, we need to support each other. And that doesn't happen all the time, particularly as women. Right. It's that it's um, survival of the fittest because we bought into that game that is survival of the fittest. And there's just no way that um, we can make it as a um, as a uh, gender and as a ethnicity or race. We can't do that without supporting each other. And so that's not doesn't seem to be happening much. Um, it almost is like this competition. And we need to, because the spots are so, there's scarcity in the, there's this notion of they're only going to bring on X number of women and I want to be that person, you know, instead of us working together and saying, we all belong here. And, you know, there are a number of spots that are going to open up, but let's just make sure that, um, you know, we help each other get there. That's number one. Um, I think, um, ah. I don't like talking about um, racism and sexism just to talk about it, to feel relieved. I want to talk about it in terms of what are we going to do next to change this? And I can't change racism because racism doesn't belong to me. Racism belongs to white people. And so my conversation is more around what are you going to do? And I can't keep telling you my story over and over again for you to finally grasp it and then made me not do anything. Um, so it's if we're if I'm gonna talk to somebody about it, I'm gonna talk to somebody else who's black. I'm gonna talk to another black woman um, to just kind of compare and contrast and support each other, um, but not to create any kind of solutions because we don't own the solution. Just like we don't own the problem. I agree with you. So if you are talking to another black woman or another BIPOC woman, and she's coming to terms with this, uh, doesn't feel a lot of confidence or advocacy. 
hasn't quite found her voice yet, but feels unseen, unheard. What would you say to her? It's about reading the situation you're in, right? So there's no one answer, but it's about reading the situation you're in. It's, um, you know, my qu- I would answer with questions. How long are you willing to work twice as hard to get half as much? Um, are there other places that you would feel like you are valued, right? Either within the same organization or in a completely different one. And do you really know who you are and how strong are you with your self-identity? Because once you get, at least for me personally, once I had said, this is who I am, if you don't like it, too bad, you know, um, everything, a lot of weight just lifted off of my shoulders. And part of it is I've always been sort of the odd person anyway. Like I, I remember one of my teachers uh, signed in my high school um, yearbook when I was a senior, you know, you're really nice and um, dumb to the fact of, um, and you're strange, <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, this is how people have always seen me. And so, you know, whatever, right? But not caring, and I can't tell people to not care what other people think about them, but that's sort of, you know, the thing is like, why are we letting other people dictate how we feel about ourselves? We should dictate how we feel about ourselves. We need to be strong in ourselves. And that comes with age. Yeah. So that's another arc that's been coming through all of the episodes that we've been doing here at Bella's Table is, yes, there's there's these things happening. Some of them are clear and distinct. Some of them are still squishy. We're learning how to talk about them. But there is an element of your own journey and you being responsible for looking your own dragons in the eye. And the two are not mutually exclusive. And so on my personal journey, I've really found it meaningful that when I felt the most progress and the most confidence was when I was able to look myself in the mirror and say, you need to work on this. You need to work on this. And you're right. That only comes with time. It comes with age and it comes with self-acceptance. I think, Angela, you said something to me one time off the cuff and it like it it was like a bullseye. You're like, we're too old to have fake friends. And I agree. <laughs> we're too old to have fake friends. We are we need to surround ourselves with people who have shared values, with people who are on a similar mission. Um that voice inside your head that gets you through to the next juncture and the next juncture that makes your life meaningful, that voice needs to get louder, not continue to be, uh, you know, suppressed because of self-doubt. Angela, can you tell me a little bit about that in your in your journey about realizing what your was meaningful in your work and then building on that? And, you know, now we see you today as an advocate for so many beautiful things in our community. Tell me how you realize that and the people that helped you uh, along on that journey. Um, well, let me just start by Trish saying strange is never a way that I would describe you. There are a lot of other words like power. I think powerhouse Bella mentioned it earlier. Strange is, yes. is not one of the things that I would, I would describe you as. Um, you know, I think that my journey around this is actually, um, it's, it's my journey, right? And it's, um, complicated and, um, at times it's been painful. Um, part of my journey and how I sort of landed in a place where I really feel like I, I know who I am and I am me is, um, I, you know, I got a divorce, um, about four years ago and I, 
really had to detach myself from this identity that was very closely linked um, to my um, kid's dad. Um, I really had to detach myself from, you know, being the CEO of a company that had his name on the door and really go out and find to myself, like, what is valuable to me? What is meaningful to me? And I think that the work that I do now um, at Fair Start is so, it's so honestly and just, me. It, it just, it speaks to, you know, my own story of, um, you know, I grew up in a double wide in a small town in Eastern Oregon. And I got out of that town and I got out of that situation because I started working in like food and hospitality when I was 15 years old. My ability to say those words out loud, to even admit that I had grown up in a double wide like that is not something that would have been even remotely possible for me five or six years ago. And so I think that, you know, I often talk to our students and program participants at Fair Start who are overcoming significant barriers, long-term incarceration, homelessness, addiction, um, deep poverty, systemic barriers, um, racism. And the one thing that I can say to them is that, Fair Start actually had a place in my own journey because it allowed me to connect more deeply with my true self, which is like the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And how do I be proud of that whole thing in life that makes me who I am now? And, um, you know, it. I think it gives me more purpose in my work. It gives me a little bit more purpose in my own life. And, you know, I think that part of imposter syndrome that we deal with both in the workplace and at home is this notion of happiness, like that your job must make you happy all the time or that your life must make you happy all the time. And that's just not true. Like that's not what a that's not what life is about, right? Like you have a big full life, both in a career perspective and a personal perspective in all of the times when you might feel happy or content or peaceful, but it also builds a beautiful life when you struggle and you feel this pain and it's really hard. And I think that being able to let go of some of that, like what does a perfect life look like, has sort of freed me a little bit from that deep imposter syndrome that maybe I felt before um, to feeling a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. And and I try to, I think I, I try to lead that way too, if I can, when I can. So um, Angela, when you were talking about um, being afraid to talk about um, growing up in a double life. I was thinking to myself, like, why? And it it just dawned on me that we never hear stories about white people growing up poor and rising to the ranks, right? We always hear about uh, people of color, particularly Black folks and um, uh, Latinos, you know, how we worked hard, you know, we came from a poor background. And I think it's because it's one of the ways that our country keeps white people as uh, in their mind supreme, right? Like white people have always had stuff and we've always, you know, you've always ruled, you've always, you know, and so never, because we don't talk about white people on welfare. There are more white people on welfare than anybody else, but you never hear that. You never see that. And so that's one of the ways the system has groomed you, because I don't think you intentionally don't want to talk about it, but it's the way the, the society works that makes you feel like that's not a story you can tell, right? It's just the same way when we don't see black and brown people in media, 
in all types of media, all forms of media, the assumption is that, unless it's a negative thing, right? But the assumption is that only white people belong in the magazines, only white people belong in the business um, accolades and all that. And it's, it's orchestrated. It's been that way since long before we were born. It's been that way since day one that white people came on into this country. And that's one of the things that I feel um, when I hear other um, social justice folks say that um, white people are not free, you are not free to be you and talk about you because of everything that happened before you came. And you'll feel free as you get older, right? You're able to say, I grew up in the double wide and all that, but you should have been free to be able to say that from day one. Right. It should have been OK. And so once I think everybody realized that we're all in some ways a victim of this system, um, this white supremacist system, then that's when we'll all rise up together. But until then, we're going to be in the same spot. Yeah, there's I, I, there's a book. I just want to jump in so listeners can um, I, I'll have to find the author, but it's My Grandmother's Hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, have either of you read it? No. It's, it's so, so much of what you're saying, Trish, is relates to that. So it talks about racialized trauma for black, um, white and blue bodies, actually. So it talks a lot about policing. But what you're talking about is so related. Like, so the pain that I have felt in telling my story of how I grew up and where I grew up is informed by this huge social like and racial construct. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's an amazing book. I'll try to find the author before we're done, but um, I'm sure you could put it in the podcast notes. But it's a it's a terrific read. Yeah, absolutely. And and Angela, to uh, you know, thank you for being vulnerable and saying that. I want to say it wasn't. I'm you know I'm going to be 40 soon, but it wasn't until uh, last week that I finally was able to publicly admit, only because I finally had made peace with it. Very similar to what you said that I grew up on welfare. In Canada, I grew up on welfare, and uh, and you know I, I had to own myself and be a fully realized adult before I could make peace with that. Because to me, up until then, it felt dirty and it felt wrong. But I understood exactly what it was. It was circumstantial. It was socioeconomic. You know, it doesn't matter that my mom became an advocate for us and powerful in her own journey later on. But whatever it is that that stays with you and it's taboo to talk about it. And even the day before I posted it, uh, you know, cause it's related to this larger project. I need to tell my own truth in order to help other people tell theirs. I still felt anxiety about it in my tummy. Um, do you, does that still make you feel anxious today when you are with a group of colleagues or students who you're mentoring um, to talk about your roots and where you came from and being able to separate the trauma of that into the healing of what it has become in your life now in your advocacy work? Uh, it's easier for me to talk about in rooms like that because I feel like that's where I find people that I that probably have similar stories that, you know, that it's relation, more relational. It's more anxiety when I talk about it in, in public because it also like reminds, like I also have to carry like the pain that I might be causing my family by talking about it. That's interesting. I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, it's interesting that you feel that way because, you know, we have been conditioned as Black folks to, you know, to try to, um, for those who weren't brought up in in poverty, 
right? To they're trying to say, well, I was middle class. I was middle class, you know, and it's like I didn't even know that we were poor because it was just how all black people lived when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. Right? Yeah, I didn't realize that we yeah. were poor either. Yeah. Right. Like and this is a really interesting thing that I don't think that you do realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like but the the notion that you were poor as a white person is far less acceptable than the notion that I was poor as a black person. Right. And um, and I think part of it uh, for white people is that, um, again, is that that um, perception of or expectation of excellence. Right. And that all white people are great. And the ones that aren't, they aren't trying hard enough, right? But nobody talks about things like all the um, things that rich white people have done to poor white people to keep them poor, right? So then it's that within the race, nobody wants to talk about that. And I think that, um, you know, that plays a lot into how you feel. I'm glad you embrace it. I think you should embrace it with anybody else. And, um, regardless of the audience. And um, it would be interesting, I think, to how your family feels about that, having a conversation with your family. Um, and well, they don't they, they don't think we were poor, like they would look at it and say, like, you always had a roof over your head, you always had this, you always had that, like, right. And so I think that's, that's, and that's all true, right? It's all true. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that this is all very interesting. This is really interesting. Um, so for me, Trish, um, I want to say that we had talked before and um, I, I really loved the comments that you had made about instilling a sense of uh, responsibility for the individual um, in the work that you do. Um, and that's been really meaningful for me as I'm coming into my own here and how I raise my children despite the things we can't control, we can definitely control how we react and our, the contribution we make to the community that we want to continue to build and the community that we want to live in. Can you expand a little bit on how that influences the way you teach or build your programs um, in the education work that you do? Yeah, you know, one of the things that bothers me the most is when we tell kids who, particularly kids who live in the inner city, to get your education and get out. Right? It's like, but wait a minute, you grew up here. This is your home. Why wouldn't you get your education and come back home and help build up your community? So we really talk a lot to the kids about, number one, what can you do today to improve your community? First, understand what's going on. Secondly, what can you as an individual or what can you do to help others um, help your community? Because it is where you live. It is where your family's going to be for a while. And even if you end up going to college and living where you went to college instead of coming back home, it's still your place, right? Um, So really the whole idea is around, um, we are, as much as we can be responsible for, let's be responsible for. We can be responsible for our own education, our own knowledge, how we talk to people, how we work with people. There are things that are beyond our control, but let's just make sure we can control what we can. and we talk to them about their capacity. Like you could do anything you, you set your mind to, right? You won't be perfect at everything, but you have to at least try because you never will know. You know, so we've had kids that didn't know that they could um, 
be programmers, didn't know they had an interest in the healthcare system until they actually got their hands dirty in it and started doing things. And it was like, oh, I can do this. There's a, there's a possibility here. But what we tell kids as a system is that this is what we're going to teach you. And this is all you need to know. And then when you become grownups, we expect you to know a whole bunch of other stuff to navigate your life. Well, I'm not going to know that if I spent the first um, 18 years of my life in this system, in this box you built for me. And then you change the expectations for how I should be in the world and what I should know in the world. So what we try to do is get kids to understand what the expectations are going to be when they get older. And this is how we ramp you up to them. Right. We want you to help be responsible for um, supporting your classmates. We want you to be responsible for your own efficacy in your own education. Right. And that's done organically. It's not done by speeches or anything like that. It's just done in the work that they do every day. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. great. Uh, I'm going to bring it back to uh, imposter syndrome for one second here. Um how can we both acknowledge that imposter syndrome is not really a diagnosis, but a construction of systems of oppression, especially for BIPOC women, and have personal accountability here, right? Just on the heels of the comments that you just made. How can we self-advocate in a way that presents options in the world instead of limitations? Tell me how you guys uh, have experienced this in your own journeys. I had a question, Angela, before you answer that, because I think you're going to answer that. I didn't understand. I was thinking you were going to answer no, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. the whole idea of accountability. Like, you know, I, I put in your thing, like, accountable to who? Who are we being? We can be accountable to ourselves. We can do that without imposter syndrome, right? I mean, we just have to do that no matter what. Don't you think? Um, it's so intersectional for me. It's like, there's these things that are, there's causation, right? And then I can be limited by that as I work that out in my life and in my mind and in my identity. And then there's the accountability that might help me look the storm in the eye instead of being scared of the storm, if that makes sense, right? And for me, I justifiably could have been suppressed by the things that I believed were suppressing me for the rest of my life. And it wasn't until I took that really hard look in the mirror and said, yeah, but, uh, you know, my side of the aisle isn't that clean. I I could be better at this. I need more discipline here. These are the things I need to do for myself to advocate for myself in my own life, in my own nuclear system. And those things are accretive, right? When I am stronger individually, it helps me deal with the world and parts of the world that I can't control. So that's my perspective on personal accountability. I also think, so Trish, so much, I would ask you too, like, what would your 40 year old self though say, right? Because I, like you, you are, you carry so much wisdom around this where you, and you talk about how, as you've gotten older, like you've, you have such a different perspective. And I, and I also think that there's something with like Gen X women who we deal with a whole, I mean, there's a whole other, like, that's a whole nother podcast to talk about Gen X women. Um, but I do wonder like that. So it's interesting, um, Trish, that you would say like accountability to who, 
um, and like immediately think like you don't need like, okay, if it's just yourself, like that's like easier. But I think that for, I don't know if it's a generate, like if it's our generation of Gen X women, like when I think about who I'm accountable to, like the very last person I would think about is to myself, right? Like I, I would make the laundry list of everyone else that I'm accountable to before I'm accountable to myself. And that's not to be a martyr, but I think it's just like, I wonder if it's the time, if it's, it's like the time we're in, in our lives. Yeah, it could be. I mean, like when I was 40, I just I just left the industry. I was 39 years when I left the tech industry because I knew it wasn't for me and I was tired of trying to make it fit. I like tech. I still write code today, but I don't like the industry necessarily. Um, I might like it a little better today because it's gotten a lot better in some ways. But it's the thing of I was accountable to myself to do something that was that I wanted to do, right? That would make me um, feel like I was contributing in a way. And that's why a lot of times I say I am my mother's child. You know, I grew up with a woman who served the community through church, who served the community through helping people um, who were struggling in our little town. Right. I wasn't doing enough of that in my mind. And I wasn't um, I don't want to blame the tech industry for it, but I found that niche of if I'm going to do something, I'm going to make sure that kids who look like me get a chance to be in this industry and start their own companies and all that. And that's where I'm going to be instead of um, instead of uh, internally struggling to make it up the ladder and to do things the way. The company wanted me to do it versus the way I knew was the right way to go. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some way you have to conform, you know, when you work for a company. But there's some things that if it hits your heart, you don't have to do. There must have been a certain level of self-conviction you got to. Like there must have been a tipping point, Trish, right, before you went and made that big step out and vote for yourself. But that took time, took a little bit of time for you to get there. So I think that's what I'm getting at here is because we're not here and, you know, we all acknowledge it's a journey. I think I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get to for women who aren't there. You know, it's not it's not as simple as saying we'll just keep going and put one step in front of the other. I think we need to acknowledge that being accountable to yourself and saying this is a journey. I am going to be forgiving to myself. This does need to take time. I have to undo some of the learning that's done. I have to install some new learning where I advocate for myself and I recognize myself in a in the schema of things. Um, but yeah. But yeah, I think I see that in your journey. I think I see that in the choices that you've made. I'm sorry, you were going to ask Angela. Yeah, so Angela, you did the same thing. You you went to Fairstart instead of working for a company that had your um, ex-husband's name on it, right? You made that decision. That's a big decision because now you've completely changed your career. And you made that decision, right? And that that's the thing. It's like you just have to... I try not to, another thing I'm notorious for is I try not to overthink anything. It's like, you just do it, you just go, you just do it. And that's just kind of how I was brought up. You know, it's like, cause we had nothing. You know, you just make it happen. Either it's gonna happen or it's not, right? You have the power. If you have the power and you have the means, right? I don't mean money, but I mean the re- any resources you need that you can actually make the move then you make the move. And I realize that not everybody can do that. I understand that. I also understand that we as a society 
think way, 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 way too much. We overthink, we diagnose every damn one thing, you know? And it's like, we don't need to do all that. Like we need to live our lives. We need to work hard. We need to treat each other well. We need to stop buying into this capitalist society that says, you know, you are worth something if you can prove you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and now you're a millionaire or a billionaire. That's bull. What it does is it keeps us from being a community, just like, you know, now everybody wants to work from home. Okay, when do you learn how to talk to people? When do you learn how to communicate? How can you feel like I can see you too online, but I can't feel you. I'm not in that room with you. And so much of how we make decisions is really based on our innate ability to feel each other's energy. We've moved so far away from that. And I think if we spent more time around each other, we can make these moves we need to make as individuals with confidence. I think you're so, so I think about like just what it takes to move through imposter syndrome. And we talk about like the, the diagnosing of ourselves. Part of that is having hard conversations to, and being able to look, you know, the two of you in the eye and be like, I'm really struggling with this. And have you look me back in the eye and be like, okay, here's the deal. Like, Stop overthinking it, right? And you can't have those kind of hard conversations through the screen in the same way that you have them, you know, face to face. And I, you know, I actually see the women that I that I work with at Fair Start, and particularly um, women of color who I work with, who are stepping more into that power of saying, "I want to have a hard conversation with you, and I'm going to do it face to face with you." And I find that to be really exciting. And again, this is where it go from like the Gen Z women to millennial women are really willing to own so much of their own power. And then I see like, um, uh, did I say Gen Z, Gen X to then millennial. And then the Gen Zers are going to come along and they're just like, what's wrong with all of you? Like you're all messed up, right? Like they're the, they're the wisest of everyone, I think. I forget what generation I am. Like there's so many now. I just yeah. stop. No, I mean, it, and yeah. but they, they interestingly do have characteristics. I'm at the um, younger age of baby boomers, but I was raised, you know, from all the older boomers, right? And it's it's you know our whole mark on the world is we just get stuff done, we just get it done. You know, there's not a whole lot of you know angst about stuff and all that is like, you know, find a way or make a way. And that's, you know, what I tell my staff all the time. It's like, we're a find a way or make a way. Because otherwise, all you're doing is sitting around pissing and moaning and nothing is getting done. Right. And and yeah, things aren't going to get done right the first time sometimes. But there's a chance to go back and, you know, fix it and redo it and learn from it so that it can be done well. It's just a, it's yeah, generationally we're all very different. Yeah, well, and I think that like where imposter syndrome shows up for me and for women of my generation is like we're sort of, and this isn't universally true, but I think by and large, like we're a generation that that wants to prove that we can be the breadwinners in our in our houses because maybe our you know maybe like the generation that was ahead of us like just started to do that, but we want to show that we can do that the whole way. And so I think you know when I made this move, it was also really important for me to think about what is my long term career moves in this because I'm now you know as a single mom the breadwinner of my household. Right. And so like, what does that look like? And it's different than 
when my mom was having to do the same thing. And so um, I, I think that there's a different level of pressure. And, and you're right, we diagnose ourselves all the time and what's wrong with us. And we don't spend enough time to your point, Bella, of like, what's right with us. And then I think for white women specifically in how we move this forward is it's not enough just to be a mentor to others who are experiencing imposter syndrome. Like we need to move beyond mentorship to sponsorship. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I I think the root of all this is about expectation. Mm. Right. We are oh, aren't they the worst. Right? Expectations are the worst. Expectation. And when you see the environment that you're going to go work in or be in, the expectation is that you will go in and fit in and be like everybody else. Why do you got to be like everybody else? Right. Why can't you just be yourself and come into that space? You know, again, we're in a in a system that wasn't built for us and we're trying to play the game and we're trying to play it too late. We weren't taught to play it when we were younger, right? Um, and uh, and so that's why it makes it hard for us to try to learn and play the game. And the question is, do you even want to play the game, right? Like now, obviously, everybody can't be an entrepreneur and go do their own thing. But do you even want to play the game? You have to make that decision for yourself. And if you decide you want to play the game, then go in there and play it, and don't feel like you're an imposter and shouldn't be there. Right. Just go in there and play and and know that you're going to lose sometimes and you're going to win sometimes. But that's part of that process. That's a decision everybody has to make for themselves. Can I ask you a question, Bella, because something that Trisha just said really resonated with me related to like, go and be an entrepreneur. Like you're not free of that, right? When you're a a woman entrepreneur, and I would imagine as particularly a woman of color who's an entrepreneur, like that's a whole different, like you, the game that you, that I, and I, and you and I have talked about this a lot and sorry, I'm flipping the surrender and interviewing you for a minute, but the game that you've had to play as a woman of color to get funding for your business is not the same as no white <laughs> as white colleagues. Well, no, it's not. And I think the height of my imposter syndrome has been when I am in a room of uh, VCs or angel investors and they all look the same and I look nothing like them. And it's a group of white men who have and first of all, see, I mean, if we're going to talk about the funding space, you're right. It's very tight knit community here. It's very provincial. It's very tech. It's very tech based. I am not in tech. I'm in I'm in food. I'm in CPG. And so that has its own limitations to try and be a successful fundraiser here. But I will say um, I've never seen so many eye rolls in my life. <laughs> and Trish, to your point. The, the strategy that you did uh, right in your career where you overprepared, you overlearned, you you knew every little mm-hmm. thing there was to learn, that doesn't get you very far with people who think they know everything about everything. And, and so, you know, um, I think for me, like packing up and like taking taking like sitting this one out is not an option because I see the world that my daughter is going to have to inherit from me and I I need to figure it out for her. I need to figure it out for myself. And I need to figure it out for the goals of my mission, which is helping my community uh, bridge bridges within ourselves. And I'm doing that through food. But it's very hard, Angela, you're right, as a woman of color 
living in Seattle, especially during COVID to fundraise um, and the lessons I've learned, especially now, you know, we have a we have a pretty impressive, meaningful female entrepreneur cohort in Seattle. And I tell you what, um, white, brown, black, doesn't matter. We all have had the same experience too, to some degree as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also generational also, Angela, for me and you, you're right, because our generation it does have this uphill mountain to climb. And for me, it makes it easier because I tell myself I'm only competing with myself. And I and I love the excellence I've achieved because of that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make the larger pill easier to swallow, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 uh, I can see that. I could easily see that. One of my alum, um, Sherelle Dorsey, uh, just published a book called Upper Hand, um, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us. And um, she spends her time um, lifting up black tech entrepreneurs. And she talks a lot about the lack of VC investment and all that and the lack of um, of uh, even getting a foot in the door. Right. And so I had a conversation at one of at an awards event um, with one with a VC. And we were talking about like how there's a lack of investment in black business. And he goes, well, not all the white businesses succeed. I said, but you don't even give the black businesses a chance to even try. And he was like, oh, right. And it's like, you got to get us in the door. We're not expecting that we're going to succeed right away every time. I mean, everybody wants to succeed, right? But there is that notion that you could fail. But if you don't even give me a chance to do that, and then the other side, if you're um, a white woman or a person of color and the investment comes to you um, and you don't make it, then you, it ruins it for everybody coming behind you. Right. And that puts that extra on us. And that puts that do I really belong here on us? And it shouldn't be that way. We're not the problem. You guys, we're not the problem. And that's the thing we have to recognize the people who are the problem who are the people who see the world like this and they have no other experience with anything else. And if you don't fit in this world with them, then you're not going to get the investment. You're not going to get uh, the job, you know, whatever it is you're trying to get. But you're not the issue. And that's the thing we need to get ourselves to understand that we are not the problem here. As long as we feel like we're the problem, we're going to keep trying, you know? Yeah, you don't get there until you're ready. But when you get it, it's very easy to burn the boats and say, I'm going to do this regardless. It's Yes. Well, but it is that like how much harder are you going to work to do it? And I think, you know, I think about the way that particularly men and even some women talk about, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say I've experienced it from older women and men of all ages where they're like surprised that you're smart <laughs> like that you know like they're surprised that you're capable um y- you know and and yeah and, and black women face this even more I, I saw something on LinkedIn where there was um a picture of uh, a black woman in just scrubs and she was talking about how someone said like they asked me if I could go get the doctor and then the next photo of her is with you know her doctor's coat on she's like I am the doctor but it's one of those things that it's like it's a frustrating uphill battle to constantly show up in spaces where people are like surprised that you are like can carry a conversation surprised that you know the content that you're talking about right and so 
I think we all show up like women in general, I think have to battle that. Mm -hmm. And then they want to be your friend. Once they figure out you're smart, all of a sudden they want to be your friend. It's like, "Mm, nope, nope, nope. You didn't want me before. You don't get me now. That's one of my favorite quotes. I think Julia Roberts said that like 20 years ago. And as a kid, I remember that if I wasn't good for you, good enough for you before, I'm not good enough for you now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about beauty. Okay. We're, uh, it's, it is something that, you know, we all have to navigate. Um, from my perspective, it's how I see it, saw myself in my 20s and my 30s, now going into my 40s, feel very different about the standards I was trying to compete with and how that was uh, limiting how I showed up in the world. And I, I think for me, children has changed it too. Tell me, you know, in relation to imposter syndrome, how you unpack uh, dealing with beauty and how it's represented to you in the world. Trisha as a black woman. Angela as uh, a white woman. Um, I think it's it's very relatable territory that we don't talk about often enough. Um, and there's a there's a there's a mode of self forgiveness and acceptance. I think that we have yet to embrace as a community of women um, that I'd like to kind of unpack here. So, Trish, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'll be honest and say I never really cared about that. I never cared about that. And um, I am very mindful that there are places that I don't fit in because of that, and particularly in the Black community. Um, And then again, I had to say, you know, fine, that's how it is. Uh, But I have two daughters, and I really care for them that they're not following this standard of beauty that somebody else set for them that they care on their own. And I watched it with my oldest, who will be 24 um, in March. And I watched when she was a teenager and how important um, having her hair done and her makeup and all that kind of stuff, how important that was to now. She's just like, you know what? You know, she has her little eyelashes, you know, and she has her little lip gloss and she's good. Hair is done, you know, she still looks great. But she's not spending, you know, getting up to spend that hour to make herself look good. And I'm so proud of her for that because she could continue to do that. And it would be because she cares about other people, how other people see her. She's happy with herself. She ha- she's happy with how she looks. Um, and she knows how to dress way better than me. Um, I don't know where she got that from, but she got it because uh, um, I'm a jean and T-shirt person. Um, but I, to me, making sure that my daughters didn't care about that was more important, um, than anything. And, and I, and it doesn't mean I don't want them to care about how they look. I just don't want them to do it because somebody else expects them to look a certain way. Agree. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's in large part to the way you raise them, right? You, you raise them to recognize their inner virtues and have, uh, you know, have a meaningful life and and a vision for themselves beyond the way the world was perceiving them physically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So kudos mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. I grew up in a culture where if you weren't fair skin, you were not attractive. If you weren't five foot seven, you weren't attractive. And then you better hope you got into an engineering program. Otherwise you have no value. Right. So I think, you know, generationally and culturally, we all receive and grapple with this concept of feminine beauty, feminine, uh, you know, ideals really differently. Angela, tell me about how that journey changed for you. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has over the course of my 20s, 30s, and now in my into my 40s. And 
you know, I, I, I still am a person who, you know, cares very much about my own appearance, but for different reasons. Like I think for my own, like for my own self now, maybe more than for others. And I know what makes me feel good and feel more confident, but I think that there still is some of that social construct in the system that like, well, why do I feel more confident? Because I'll tell you, like on the days that I'm feeling like, if I'm just feeling like I'm going to have an off day, I am not going to feel like I just, I'm not prepared or I'm not, I don't know, just, I don't have my mojo. That's the day when I'm like, okay, I'm going to like put on something that makes me feel confident that like, I, I feel good wearing, I'm going to, you know, do my makeup in a different way so that I feel good about it. Um, I'm going to flat iron my hair, which I did for you ladies today. Um, and so, but I think that it is like, it. it's, I don't know. I don't know if I have the answer to that because I still think that I am susceptible to a lot of those external pressures on what women are expected to look like. And now that I'm, you know, cl- closing in on my mid forties, like what you're expected to look like now when you're in your mid forties is still like you're 30. Right. And so there's a little bit of a different pressure, but at the same time, I feel like I have a little bit more, um, purpose in like my self care. And it's really more about self care than it is about like how I show up and what other people think. And I'm the mom of two boys I'm the mom of two boys and we have a lot of conversations about this. And like, because my role as a mother to two white boys in particular is to raise them to be different than maybe the generations of white boys before them and how they treat women and how they treat other people. Um, and, and honestly, and how they treat themselves and internalize that to- toxic masculinity, which again, a whole nother podcast about how toxic masculinity impacts women and, and, and the connection to imposter syndrome is, is pretty fascinating. I was just going to say, I think that's important how we raise our boys. We also have two boys and um, the, the whole idea of how you treat women is a big conversation with us on a regular basis. Uh, They're uh, 22 and uh, 19 years old. And we've been talking about that from day one. So they're in a household full of women who are two, two mom household. And so um, they know just instinctively how they're supposed to be around uh, women. But then as they got to be in their teens and, you know, the hormones are happening and all that, having those conversations about how you treat women had to be had um, and not just assumed. Um, Yeah. And I think that's another way we change the situation for young women growing up, because when they're growing up together, right, they're all hopefully in a different um, uh, employment structure where they don't face what we face. We hope. Yeah. I also think with boys, though, too, it's so important that we're understanding, like, not just the how you treat, I'm realizing it's not just how, how they, you know, Growing, t- grow, raising them to treat women well, but it's actually just raising them to treat other people well. And I see so many ways in which toxic masculinity shows up, you know, between, you know, two men or, and, and I think about just the mental health challenges of LGBT, you know, cisgender male youth who don't fit in that construct of masculinity and all of the struggles that go into that. And and that's where I don't want my children to be on either side of that. Right. And, and so I think it's just this whole like deconstructing that 
system that you've talked about so, so much, Trish? Really good. Really good. Um, I think, you know, Trish, to your comments about the way you raised your daughters, I think last year was the first year. This is was hard for me to admit to myself, but last year was the first year I actually liked the color of my skin. And it's been a lifelong battle for me to uh, battle being too dark. You're too dark, right? So we have another episode that we're going to do. I feel really passionate about the concept of colorism, how damaging it truly is, and even you know how we're still connected to it deeply today. Um, but for me, that's, that's what it was. Um, and then also, Angela, to your point, accepting your body is going to change and you will never ever look like you were when you're 20 even though society projects those images to you everywhere you go I am allowed to be in my 40 year old body I have hips I have had two c-sections you know and everything north of that is going to change too and as it should Um, yeah oh by the way I'm getting remarried and like what it means now to be in my 40s and putting on a like the expectation of what I think I have on myself of what I'm supposed to look like as a bride is so it's just fascinating. I mean, it's like the whole thing is fascinating. Oh, yeah. We could talk about this for hours. Thank you for answering it so honestly. Okay, so I want to get to my last question here. We are coming to the end of our time here, although we, I feel like we're just starting to get to the tip of the iceberg here. Um, Trish, I'm going to start with you. Tell me when was the first time you actually saw yourself? Hmm. You know, I saw that question and I still didn't have an answer. Um, just who I am, who I really am. The first time I saw myself was probably when I was 27. And I came to Seattle from San Francisco. And I had to think about who am I going to be? You know how you can reinvent yourself, right? And um, when you move to a whole nother place and I decided that I liked who I was and I was happy with who I was, even though I was young, you know, relatively young, um, I saw that this is how I was going to be. And this is the core of who I am. Yeah. I also wasn't sure I had an answer to this, but I think the, because I think that you see yourself for the first time when you reach different milestones in your life. Um, So I think you see yourself in a different way when you become a mother. I think you see yourself, you know, in a different way. Um, I I can speak, you know, as, as a divorced mother, you know, when you go through that. But I think the first time I really saw myself and had to make that decision is a similar kind of inflection point in my life. I was um, 19. Uh, I had flunked out of college my first year, um, which was devastating and well-deserved because I was not living right. Um, And I had the choice that I would go back to that small town and repeat a cycle of probably what I was seeking to leave or I would make a decision and I had to really see who am I, like, who am I down deep and what do I have to, to make a change. And I think it's those points in my life when I've had to like really like dig deep and be like, okay, I can keep on with what's been in the past. And a lot of that includes stuff that's not serving me, or I can really take a look at myself and make a decision to move forward. And so I think that that was really the first time I made that decision. 
Thank you, Angela. Thank you to both of you for giving us so much of your time today. I know how yeah. busy both of you are. Um, this was a really important conversation to have. Thank you. And like I said, I feel like we could have talked about this for hours. It's dynamic. It's uh, intersectional. It's rich with self-exploration and a lot of questions, you know, for ourselves. I think, Trish, to your point that these will only get answered over time for us individually. Um, but creating a community of women that are vulnerable and talk about these things honestly and freely, I think, is a really healing place to start. So thank you very much, both of you, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you well, for having us. Yeah, thank you for letting me in the space. Yeah, yeah. This is good. anytime. I'm Bella Sanger, and this podcast was recorded in partnership with Joy Sauce at Cloud Room Studios in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nick Patry, video editor, Matt Flunker, and producer, Chelsea Lynn. For more information, head to joysauce.com.